Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. My name's Sam. Joining us today is Nick Della Croce of Bong Ripper, a legendary doom metal band based here in Chicago. They are absolutely punishing with their sound. They are unforgiving. They are who they are. And Nick's kind of going to dive into how that all kind of came about and their origins in the DIY scene of Chicago. And this is a special year for Bong Ripper. They were celebrating 10 years of Satan worshiping doom, which is pretty awesome. It's a excellent record. I would like to think that Satan's been worshipped for longer than 10 years of doom. I think we have historic evidence that that is the case. So should we rip some bongs? <laughs> I think we should. All right, let's uh, get heavy and rip bongs. Let's do it. show that they did at where was it at it was at that beer bar place um in in avondale sleeping village the yeah sleeping, yeah, village. sleeping village uh they were playing there and um he actually went on a hardcore hunt with his family like on the east coast he went back to all of them and he's like hey do you know any uh that live in chicago and so like the whole family went on this whole like hunt and it turns out there may be some kind of loose connection, but nothing like crazy. Is it like a regional thing? Is there like uh, an island somewhere that's all Cangelosis? Sicily. <laughs> <laughs> the little the little soccer ball. So do they all like once a year hold hands it's around a- Pompeii and like do some kind of dance? We we swim across <laughs> the channel. <laughs> We swim across the channel, we form a chain around the mountain, and we do a little circle dance. So I'm sitting in a room, all three of us have some type of Italian name in our in our names, because I'm the Dave Ferrari, Nick is the Della Croce, and, and then you're we got this Kangalosi. So we're, we're doing pretty good here. Three Italians sit at a table. Are you, are you full Italian? Uh, half. Uh, what's the other half? A mix of everything European. Sounds like me. Well, yeah. my... Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side, uh, Balsanti. Oh, excellent. <laughs> nice. Uh, went uh, down to North Carolina during World War II to be a tail gunner. And he met a girl there who was a dancer. Like, well, like was like out dancing at like the army or I guess Air Force halls. I don't know. And brought her back to Chicago. So I'm 75% Italian because my dad's full percent. And then my grandmother is, she says Scotch, Irish, and English, but I think it's just, it's like, Billy, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's well, like uh, deer hunting for uh, deer hunting with Jesus, uh, <laughs> American. Yeah, yeah. Irish Italian. That's something my dad said you should never have. You have a bad temper, apparently. Well, I think it's uh, it. So with okay, so with my mother, you have uh, Italian, all Italian parents. They came from there. And then she grew up in South America. Latin temper and Italian sort of like uh, stubbornness is pretty. The stubbornness <laughs> is real. I, I've I've come to realize that the older I get, I like I have a firm. This is what I want to do, and I'm gonna do it. Don't get in my way. It's th- real. It's real. I think I. It's always been there. It's just I'm becoming more aware of it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. The older I get, I'm like, ooh, it's not a bad thing. But I'm just like, keep it, keep it in check, maybe a little. 
Yeah, just Com- don't be a dick about it. Yeah, don't be a dick. Compromise sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well. Well, Nick Delacroce <laughs> of Bong Ripper joining us on Heavy Hops. Thanks yeah, for coming in today. You can put the quote, don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. <laughs> Nick, don't be a dick, Delacroce. Excellent. Uh, New stage name, don't be a dick. It's better than be dickless dick. Nicholas. <laughs> That sounds like something that came out of personal experience. (laughs) Well, you know, I didn't get into metal from being popular. (laughs) Common case. Common case for all of us, I think. Um, Yeah, so... So so is this where the the interest in metal music came from? Yeah, tell us where... Is this this where the origin began? Um, Well, the origin is always there. But, like, I grew up with, like, my father. We're, like, kind of, like, best friends. And, like... Um, he was always into sports, but he's always into like classic rock and heavy music. Um, I remember like, he was like really into like the black album when it came out by Metallica. I remember watching, um, Nirvana play at, like with the 92 MTV awards and they played uh rate me and lithium. And the next day he brought me over to music land in Oak Brook mall to buy the nevermind cassette. And like, we kind of grew it all through there. And then like, I think a point to like when I was like 10 is when I just kind of like got really like more into music and kind of branching off. I was like really into like Q and a one shit, you know, like all this stuff there, like alternative rock and stuff. And he was into that too. Um, but eventually that's kind of like, like I want to like skateboard or like, you know, shit like that. I want to be a punk. And like, I was like, not into sports. I just like put on a bunch of weight. (laughs) (laughs) And goes and weight. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so, and then like, uh, like around around that time when I was like nine or ten, uh, my dad was actually coaching my baseball team, and we had this other kid who was on the team who was actually really good, and we like became friends, and we were going over to his place, and his older brother who was like three years older, so he's maybe like fourteen. He had a full band set up in the garage, and they were playing Green Day covers, like straight up Dookie covers, because it was like ninety five, ninety four around there, and I was like, you know, what? I think I can do this. And I asked for a guitar for Christmas. And I sucked a guitar from then until now. <laughs> the progression of guitar playing. <laughs> I thought I sucked then. I still think I suck now. Nothing has changed except everyone else perceives you as better. You grow on the outside. You don't grow internally. Well, that's people, right? That's True. like a people problem. Yeah, definitely. It's the it's the digression of humanity, right? <laughs> yes, people are the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Why play shows? People suck. (laughs) (laughs) So then how long did it take for you to go from getting that guitar to kind of starting to play in bands and Um, joining the Chicago music scene, I guess? So like when I was in, I guess, eighth grade graduation, uh, Dan, the drummer of Bong Ripper, got a drum set. And uh, so we obviously, first time on a drum set, it's... Great. Uh, <laughs> but, like, I brought over, like, my practice amp and my guitar, and we just tried to jam some stuff. I think we covered, like, uh, My Own Summer by Deftones. Nice. <laughs> and then eventually just kind of kept doing it where, like, we would practice, practice, and I'm doing quotes right there, um, <laughs> just kind of mess around with stuff, and eventually it turned into, like, a really bad, like, your first metal band. Like, a lot of, like, chug riffs that, like, Thor never thought they would write. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of very long intros, which I guess hasn't changed. 
Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just do. You went from doing really long intros to just it's all intros. a whole intro. Yeah, yeah. All you do is intro. <laughs> so, did, was metal always a part of playing music from the uh, from that early point, or was were there other kind of musical influences that became uh, that entered your sphere as a musician in a band? No, uh, metal basically ruined all my high school and everything like that. Well, like, obviously there's some, like, tangents in there if you, like, depending on your definition of metal. Like, obviously, like, I got into some, like, metalcore and, like, Dillinger Escape Plan and stuff like that. But, you know, I was, like, 14 and 15. was like, if it doesn't have blast beats, I don't want to listen to it. And, you know, like, I wrote off on stuff. It took, like, maybe, like, going into college and, like, that first year, like, first year, like, freshman year of, like, getting into all the, like, the more experimental stuff and getting different stuff. And, like, obviously, like, at first thing he's like, oh, I listen to God's Be a Black Emperor, Explosions in the Sky, and shit like that, which it's good. But, like, yeah, and then next thing you know is, like, oh, I have, I just, I'm on SoulSeek right now, and I'm downloading the MERS box, which is 50 CDs long of all MERS balls, stuff from 78 through 85. And you're just like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> No, but the the dive happens really quickly, and I think for that specific era of consuming music and finding music, it was super easy to dive. I remember uh, torrent times, and also just people had FTPs, and you, mm -hmm. if you found like the password to it or something like that, you could just get in, and everything was at your fingertips, and it was all about if you had uh, high-speed internet or not. Yeah, and this is like, you know, I had the, the college internet, which was good back in the time, especially for like 2003. Um, in 2004, like we had a rather crappy internet, but um, SoulSeeking's message boards got me like trading with people, other musicians and stuff like that, where like, I don't know if you guys used SoulSeek back in the day. No. But you could like, you could like go to different people's profiles and basically if they allow you to, you can just go through each of their stuff and download whatever you want of it that's on their system. Mm. Um, so like I was trading bunch with like, um, John from Emeralds, who was a big kind of like ambient band from like 2000s, 2010s, um, Pitchfork's like best ambient album of all time. Um, they were good. Um, and he like really gave me a whole bunch of shit, especially from like, he was from Cleveland and I got all into like all the Cleveland noise stuff through there, like with like skin graft and stuff like that. Um, and that kind of like opened up stuff for like when Bonkerberg started touring back in like 2007, 2008. And when I say touring, I mean like playing like four dates that are outside of Chicago. We would play Cleveland and we'd play a noise show with like Skin Graft or Relentless Corpse or David Russell or anything like that. And then we'd play like a show over in like Pennsylvania and then drive back or something like that and like just lose a bunch of money. <laughs> <laughs> but I think- <laughs> In a lot of ways, you, Bong Ripper didn't always play shows with bands that sounded like it, precisely like what you're talking about there. And you also played with bands that were not doom bands early on in Chicago, right? Totally. Um, the Actually, yeah, the, the first uh, noise show that I ever went to, like legit in Chicago, was at the Flower Shop in Pilsen in 2007. It was Emeralds, um, Bloody Minded of Chicago. And then we got asked, we were on the bill um, just because Solotroff of uh, Bloody Minded thought that we were on tour with him because uh, they asked us to be on the bill. And he's like, so? He's like, oh, I didn't know. He's like, how long are you in Chicago? I'm like, I live here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, you know, we've always been a band, like we've never been cool. Um, we never known people. And I just because, not because we're like standoffish, it's just like, 
don't know. That's just how we are. Um, so we always just kind of like played noise shows or um, like we had some friends like in like emo bands or something like that, like whatever, just because, I don't know, it's way more interesting. Um, not to like jump ahead, but like, like when I was booking shows for the band from like 2011 through 2017 or so before we like we started playing Metro and stuff like that. Like I would be able to book all the shows my basically myself, like from like Subterranean and Empty Bottle and stuff like that. And I'd always have a diverse bill on that. Mm-hmm. Like there would always be like some experimental, like I want a hardcore band. I want like an emo band. Like, I don't know, like whatever, like, especially like as long as it's friends too, like there's such a good crowd. Mm-hmm. And you know, as much as everyone like, I love metal, like people like other stuff. I um, couldn't think of a more polarizing situation than Harm's Way and I was going to bring that one up. <laughs> And then Oozing Wound, too. Yeah. yeah. It was just a great evening, but it was very diverse. And who who opened? Was it Wound or Harm's Way? I think Wound opened and then Harm's Way. Yeah. Uh, but that, I mean, a straight edge band playing with a band called Bong Ripper itself yeah. is very interesting, <laughs> even if you just read it on paper without any knowledge of what the sounds, uh, of what it sounds like. I mean, that with Oozing Wound together, that gives you like a really... Uh, a very visual experience of whoever did the poster of that kind of underdid the job, I would argue, in some way. Um, uh, yeah, so having a diverse bill was always an important... I mean, when you say interesting, I mean, go into that a little bit more. Like, why is that an important thing to you? I don't know. Like, did you ever go to, like, a death metal show or, like, any kind of metal show like Reggie's that has eight bands that sound the same? Yeah. Yeah, you get burnt out. Well, yeah. you leave. Yeah. Well, yeah, you have two options. Or you show up really late. You, you show, Okay, yeah, so you have three. You show up late, you just get inundated by noise the whole time, or you leave. Yeah, you know, I don't I You got to break it up. And also, like, if you don't like it, it gives you a chance to go out and smoke a cigarette or grab a burrito or something like that, whatever. Well, but there's a... Di- okay, so there's a difference... Bet- okay, there's a difference between something that's wildly diverse, which is, I think, what you're talking about. Um, and in a way, something that I try to do with Scorched Tundra of having like a pretty diverse set of diverse set of bands and then genre wide diversity. Right. So like all metal bands from uh, all of the different arms of Sam Dunn's tree of metal. Right. <laughs> so I uh, speak to that difference then. Well, I think that's just, that's a very valid thing to do, too, is like. You know, I'm not against having an all-metal show. Like, I go to all-metal shows, well, I used to, um, all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, I just don't want to hear, like, six HM2 grind bands in a row or, like, you know, there's some stuff where it's just like, you know, like, oh, this band sounds like this band, so let's put them on with this band, and then this band sounds the same, too. Like, I think it's just kind of lazy. Mm-hmm. Like, it's easy to do, like, like oh, these all them, but, like, also, it's just also bad promotion. I'll, I'll try to defend that perspective for a minute. So it's a, a way of making sure that everyone that likes that specific thing will come out is if mm. they're just ready to be beat the fuck up by a specific sound, then th- the promoter will have a, a will, will make an assumption that, okay, all of the people that like that will come out. And then they're relying on the size of that general of that specific audience that's into that subgenre versus not just that subgenre, but also 
people with a wider set of interest because the perception may be that if for for what you're arguing is that yes a lot of the there's a confidence in the people that like all these different kinds of music that are going to come out and then an additional confidence on the part of the promoter to do the job of getting that idea out there so that people will see um perhaps like the more kind of discerning concert goer will see okay this is more than just these bands but this is actually like a whole experience Mm -hmm. well yeah i think that the the knowledgeable fan recognizes that and really appreciates it you know it's like the difference between like like you throw a bunch of bands on like i call it a fest versus like something that's created like a road burn or something like that yeah you know like obviously even though it's, it's become much more diverse throughout the last few years obviously and that's amazing um but like they have a vision and they kind they kind of even though like they always push it it's always within in line and it's also like the same thing as like you know like building like an aesthetic or a brand mm-hmm. i kind of see that as more the future of not only shows but or not only festivals, but even kind of shows, kind of like with what you're doing, Alexi, it's you're creating more of a broad idea for an evening as opposed to just slapping some bands on a bill and going to see bands that you enjoy, kind of creating this whole experience around it too. Especially now that we're coming, well, we're still in the midst of COVID, but this post-COVID world, I kind of see that idea hopefully taking more stronghold. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to showing people respect in a way, too, and letting them know that there's more to metal and there's more to these genres than just what's put in front of you. I would say I remember one of the first shows that I went to that was like a metal show that had a pretty wide spectrum of bands and... Now, when I look back on it, I think of it as, you know, relatively narrow with one outlier Um, is you had like the Berserker opening, Strappy Young Lad, Dark Tranquility, who would be the outlier in that show lineup, Napalm Death and Nile at the at the Vic, which would that show would never be at the Vic now because only 500 people like that kind of music now. I was there. Yeah, you were there. That was a good show. Um, But. To me, uh, one, that was the first time seeing and hearing SYL and Dark Tranquility, and I really liked those bands as a result of that. But I think that a band like Dark Tranquility really stood out because, I mean, they were the only band that didn't play Last Beats the whole time, and they had like a melodic sensibility that none of the other bands had. I mean, maybe SYL displayed it at times, and Nile did in its own way, but I think that's maybe giving too much respect to the agent uh, and the people that put together the bill, but... I agree with that. Um, as I say, I went to that show, but, like, <clears throat> I remember, like, going to, like, and this seems, it was kind of, it seemed weird back in the day. I don't know if it seems weird now, but, like, there's several shows I went to. Do you remember Riley's Rock House over in Aurora? I never went to a show there, but I remember. Okay. Aurora was way far away from me. Yeah, it's quite the place. Um, they had a PA that was like the size of the Metro and it was probably fit like 200 people in it. And it was like run by someone who like has always wore a bear shirt, had a mullet and a mustache. And like they look like, <laughs> and like everyone in the bar just seemed like they were just like only there to sell cocaine. Um, and they would have all ages shows that would end at like three o'clock in the morning. So I'd get grounded every single time I go there <laughs> in high school. But I remember going there and like, uh, 
2001, it was diabolic scar culture. Um, diabolic, like they're like super fast, like Morbid Angel style stuff. And then the opener was Electric Wizard on Dope Throne. Whoa. So, whoa. Um, and they played to about three people. They got in a fight with the sound guy. The sound guy's like turned on your amp. He went down there and physically turned on his amp. And then they start playing and they hit the first chord and then he goes over and dimes the fucking amp and yells in the <laughs> mic, fuck you, this is rock and roll. <laughs> you know, that surprisingly does not shock me after seeing Electric Wizard and, so, and going deaf. From the stage town. From the stage we town. <laughs> so this is 2001. I'm 15 or 16. Um, and I hated him. <laughs> I thought it was the worst thing I ever saw in my life. <laughs> and for, fast forward two to three years later, I have a... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I want there. I went there. I'm like, I want blast beats. <laughs> oh, you know, oh, actually, you know who the headliner was? Enslaved. Oh, okay. So it was Enslaved, Diabolic, Scar Culture, who was a Century Media kind of like, more of a like, basic Mashi cryptopsy. And then wow. Electric Wizard. <laughs> Talk about being outlier. Yeah. Yeah. When I was growing up, there was a little music store over in LaGrange called Beautiful Day. Um, and. I would go there and like I just got like a notification like on something I found that I posted like there's a receipt from t 2000 of me pre-ordering the Cryptopsy CD from them and like I go there and the dude like be like oh you like this stuff like um you know check out like you know, he's like check out uh, Dystopia check out a Sook and he's also like you like black metal he's like check out this stuff check out that stuff um and a lot of stuff like he mentioned like I can only find like snippets like really bad online because like. I had to order a Cryptopsy CD from there. You know, like it's obviously <clears throat> was like more underground, but like that kind of like word of mouth and like, that's the nice thing about the community as much as I don't really feel like I'm part of like community, like people help each other out and like kind of like, hey, check this out. Mm -hmm. Well, metalheads like talking about metal. No, totally. <laughs> they do. It's weird. Like my experience with all of this is totally like opposite because what got me into metal was it was the Slipknots, it was the Disturbs, and it wasn't really until I came out here, and it was actually Scorched Tundra, Bong Ripper, and Wound. And it's funny, because Chicago metal is what opened me up to, like, metal metal all over the world, you know? And just living here in the metal community here is much more embracing of all kinds of metal, as opposed to good old McHenry. It's a lot of metalcore and... Uh, like kill switch engage and popular metal is the kind of stuff. It's probably it's just dominated by local radio, right? Totally, yeah. So you you kind of grow up with what you know, and we didn't really have any metal music stores or any real music stores where we could get these European bands or these smaller label bands that just didn't exist. So for me, the metal world was so small growing up until I actually moved to Chicago, and then I start going to these record stores, and I'm you know, just fingering through all these records, and I'm like, I don't know any of these fucking bands. Like, I thought I liked metal, and now I'm questioning my whole existence, you know? And then I had just turned, like, 22, 23, and Scorched Tundra at the Bottle got announced, I think it was seven, um, one, with Wound and Bong six. Ripper at six. And um, I was like, 
you know, I don't live far from there. I can walk there. I don't know these bands, but I'll go. I'll check it out. It's going to be a diverse lineups for that genre. Like, that's a good kind of spectrum. Totally. And it was really eye-opening, and I fucking love the music, you know? I walked out of there like, okay. Like, bought Bong Ripper shit, bought Wound shit. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Fully supporting you. <laughs> but, um... It was just, for me, that was kind of my point where um, metal music opened up, kind of. And it's funny, because that was, what, 2013, 14? 15? 16. Man, I am so off. I think I think it was 2016. Yeah, because uh, you brought us out to Sweden, was it 2014? In 2014, and yeah. And that was, like, this 21st of December, I think. It was, yeah. It was, nice. yeah, exactly. The solstice. If in, I'm correct, in Sweden. Right? Yeah, <laughs> nice. <it was> perfect. <laughs> nice. Yeah, uh, you got back from the airport and the sun went down. <laughs> yeah, it was sick. It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's been a hell of a journey since then. And I was mostly into rock before that. So really glad where we went, where we ended up and couldn't be happier. <laughs> yeah, well, was, um, actually, before I like got off work, I was just discussing your like slack thing with uh, one of my people I work with about like drum and bass and like techno and stuff like that and just talking about the scenes and crowds and stuff like that and like how like outside people always no matter what if they don't not familiar with like a genre or just like a subgenre it's like how much different everything can be mm-hmm. and like you know like obviously if a lay person and I don't mean that like in a derogatory way but like someone who doesn't know metal or something like that they can hear bong ripper they can hear oozing wound and they could be like, oh, it's all the same shit. It just sounds like noise. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, it's like once you get into like exploring a genre, you can really kind of realize what kind of capabilities it has. No, totally. Um, I, I feel the, I like the reference of wound and noise because I just think of our half acre experience at the birthday party that we went to where wound played at 420. Mm-hmm. And you just see all these people going back and forth around the stage because they couldn't do it. It was just a bunch of beer nerds and people who do not like metal music forced to listen to Oozing Wound. Here's the thing, though. Okay, so there's a lot of people at that event that they have built... Not everyone. There's a lot of people there that are beer nerds, right? Right. So... They have within them somewhere the framework, the capacity, and the ability to contextually place oozing wound, right? <laughs> if they knew, yes. if they knew metal, they ha- they be- by virtue of knowing about all these um, these half acre beers and knowing that there's these things and there's these mixed fermentation beers and having an understanding of the nuance and of the nuance of how it's made and the nuance of the implications of how it's made onto the flavor and your experience like they get they can that knowledge is like cross applicable to understanding what underground metal is right in some way like that you understand that there's a depth and complexity to an art form to a music form to uh, a style of producing beverage right totally but then the flip side is it's a big brewery in chicago that is very popular, and you had a lot of people there who just go because it's an event. I think they were all there for oozing wound, to be honest with I you. I mean, I would love to think yeah. that. <laughs> well, 
also with this like the human condition like if you're into something if you doesn't mean you're gonna be another even like you can understand like the intricacies of that if you already come into like a pre kind of conceived notion of what metal is or anything like that that you are just like you car like you block yourself off from like liking it or just trying to analyze you're like oh it's just like it's beavis and butthead shit or whatever. Mm-hmm. no totally that's that's the metal I, I think that's the rep that metal gets uh is that beavis and butthead kind of treatment which by a yeah lot of people. it's that's a very good description of the 80s and like well before grunge destroyed it like metal mm-hmm. for like a popular metal all right, I want to attack something here. So, two things. <laughs> One, I want to drink. I want to talk about this beer that we're drinking, the yeah. uh, fully saturated double daisy cutter. Speaking about the event that we uh, that we were talking about earlier, yeah. that was a uh, last year was ten years of daisy cutter actually. So, last year they released uh, fully saturated. They had the uh, which is what we're having now, uh, double daisy cutter, which is like uh, a sort of a take on like a super west coast um there was daisy cutter which uh, everyone in chicago knows about and they made wild daisy which i believe is kind of in the market now uh i saw something on social media recently so that's yeah. daisy cutter uh in oak i remember they were uh, super stoked about that i think at the time we were working or no, it was the year before when we did the bong cocktails and the tap yes. takeover, right? Yep. Yeah, that was long ago. <laughs> uh, but last year we got to drink this beer and watch Wound play, and it was pretty sick. I would say it was exceptional. Yeah, it was a hell of a time. So we have uh, West Coast, or I mean, this is a reimagination of uh, of Double Daisy Cutter in a way. I would say that the fully saturated is kind of a hazier take on it. Um, with uh, higher aroma and uh, flavor features, juicier, with a little bit uh, less bitterness to it. It's delicious. Yeah, it's definitely, it retains the core of what Daisy is. You know, it's that West Coast style pale ale, but it's just a hell of a lot more full-bodied, way juicier, and just, I think it's absolutely delightful. Yeah, sweet, a little creamy, a little creamier, like slicker, um, and definitely it captures some of the like fruit and slightly grassy profile that I think Daisy Cutter is kind of known for in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's super drinkable for the alcohol content too. I mean, this is uh, definitely inching closer to double digits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's dangerous. It's one of those dangerous beers. You just keep keep drinking it. That's what I found with like the some of the newer like like double IPA is like it tastes so good and like even though like it has like that booziness to it like it's so like tasty that like it's just like refreshing still at the same time like next thing you're like all right well there goes my night (laughs) (laughs) I just drank 22 ounces of 10 ounce beer I I, I had so many nights like that (laughs) getting into into like a computer game and all of a sudden oh oh, yeah that bomber of double IPA went and super quickly. <laughs> yeah, I was, wa- I was trying to, I was trying to do like a, a Zoom hangout, like watching a documentary, and then we both couldn't figure out how to do it, and we ended up just like watching it on our cell phones. Um, <laughs> but my girlfriend was working, and she came back. She's like, "What the fuck happened?" I'm like, 
like, well, I had a bad, I had, like had a rough day, and the next day I know I was like, we couldn't get the Zoom to work, and obviously I had to have some whiskey about that. <laughs> <laughs> naturally, naturally. And then I had to watch the North Korea documentary. <laughs> just to, just to oh, really yeah. bring up the mood entirely. <laughs> and now Yeah, I'm I really got to center myself. <laughs> and, that, and that whiskey bottle is empty now. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Did metal really die in the 90s, or did we miss the point? Metal's always been dead. What killed metal? Itself. It's supposed to be dead. Can you elaborate a little bit, please? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think that's kind of hyperbole, but um, I don't know. I don't like popular metal, and also, like, I'm a very open person for music, and I like a lot of different things. And I always will support everything that people like. As long as it moves you, that means it's worthwhile. But I'm a elitist prick with metal. <laughs> so I don't really care about whatever the thing like. Obviously, like, death metal, like, hit a, hit a stride in the early, mid-90s. Um, I think Nile kind of came out and picked it back up and then also sunk it at the same time with, kind of opening the door for all the hyper uh, technical bands, but that's just because I don't really enjoy a lot of that stuff. Although, like, as I said, like, I can listen to Ordin or the first few, the first record, or not the second record. Um, I don't know. Metal's always going to be there. There's mm. always going to be someone who's angry. And there's, it's, as we discussed, like, with, like, genres or anything like that, like, it's so diverse where it can be anything, like, like, I don't know, like, look at, like, power metal versus, like, I don't know, like, 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 sumac or something like that. Like, right. it's, like, completely different spectrums, but, like, you can still kind of throw it under the same umbrella. Totally. And, um, I don't know, I never really thought of metal as a popular thing just because it's never been really popular since I've been alive outside of corn and new metal. But when you yeah. get into... When you get into metal after a certain point, you realize that once you're sunk into it, there's like popular metal and there's what I would call kind of metal that is popular underground metal, right? Mm -hmm. And there's metal that is pushed by huge labels that have ideas of what they want popular metal to be, whether that's bands that have been around forever that have made the same record for 15 years, or it's a new thing that is like a band that's highly, that is like really brandable. Those are the only kinds of groups that larger labels are going after. But, so, but then there's, sorry. Uh, go ahead. Then there's the bands that are pushed by the people. And it's, uh, it's more of an underground movement at that point. You know, bands like Bong Ripper pushed by the people uh, who have their own sense of what they are, even if you don't really know what you are, you're just doing it because you like it, right? And that's something I feel like people who go deeper into the metal genre and find these newer bands come to realize when they, when they see it live and then bring it home and listen to it on a record, they get this sense of feeling that, oh, what I was listening to was pushed by people in suits who want to make money off of this music, right? And then there's people who do this music because they truly, truly love it. And they might not be making a lot of money doing it, but it's still their passion. Absolutely. And um, I think that 
metal people definitely have a cute sense of um, realism, like what is authentic, what is not. Mm -hmm. Probably to a fault. Um, <laughs> but um, just kind of talking about like we were preaching about like, I had a very sobering moment. Um, there was like, they released like an app for Spotify, like Spotify for artists, so you can like track your stuff and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But within that, you can actually also look up other bands. And so you can compare your stats against other bands? Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah, it's cool. It's terrifying. <laughs> no, so, I was going to say, okay. I don't really know if I would like that as so a band. If you, if you, <laughs> so if you want to go home and cry all night. Um, <laughs> That's what I would be scared of, is that would happen to me. Which, which we, I know we all want to do. Um, <laughs> so I pulled up the, the stats from the biggest Doom band in existence, I think, which would probably be Sleep. Mm -hmm. And compared them to the stats of Power Man 5000. Oh, no. 50 to 1, at least. Power Man, I assume. Big oh, time. Oh, wow. So if you're thinking about, like, what a big band is compared to what a big band is, it is exponential. You know, it's so funny because... I mean, like, most of that is because Power Man 5000's first album is super sick. Well, yeah. I actually never like, listened to that record. I actually want to like, think it's about this. It's pretty musically diverse. We're talking about <laughs> musical diversity. Okay, but Sleep sold out three nights at Talia Hall. Well, they make, and, a, they make a killing on live shows. Right, right, right. But Power Man 5000 couldn't even do one. Yeah, but it's just that broader audience that doesn't go to shows. Wow. And it's uh, a continuous, like, uh, they were mm -hmm. around for a continuous amount of time, whereas right. Sleep took a break, and the resurgence of the genre that Sleep is a part of in something that could be remotely considered mainstream within the world of metal is still occurring in a way. Totally. And Power Man um, has, like, a longer legacy, I think, too. Probably helps that your singer's brother is the brother of Rob Zombie too, and their first album was sick. Are we gonna? Are we, is that? Are we keeping that in there? It's gonna be in the playlist. <laughs> it's gonna be in the playlist for be. this uh, the playlist <laughs> companion. I don't know when <laughs> Power Man Five Thousand started, but Sleep's been around for longer, I think. Yeah, ninety two. No, uh, okay, but as far as a legacy, okay, you, I stand corrected as far as chronology goes, but as far as the legacy within the. Uh, I mean, they almost were not even active in the same times. So Power Man started in like the late 90s, um, early 2000s. And that was a time that sleep wasn't as active as, say, like the early 90s or the mid 90s, right? Absolutely. And like, yeah, like when I first started getting into stuff, like I never thought sleep would be a band that ever would play. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Let alone release an album on 420. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a sick, uh, that, that was an awesome surprise for everyone. Because that was a surprise drop, if I remember correctly, of uh, it was, 2018, yeah. right? The record is, it's good. Yeah, it was. I'm, uh, I'm more of a Dope Smoker fan than Holy Mountain, so, mm -hmm. but I do, like, I can listen to that record, I'm like, there's some really good parts on it, and like, obviously Sonic Titan's a ripper. Yeah, definitely. Also, I... I want to go on record of like I hate that I love using the term ripper all the time because it makes me sound like a jagoff because <laughs> I'm in a Such band a called Bon Ripper. Rock. But like it's just like you know like you first like check out that drum dude like he's fucking ripper. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah, uh, what uh, 
let's jump into Dope Smoker for a second then. So when, what was your first exposure to that and what kind of an impact did it have for you as a listener? Um, so it was probably like 2003. It was like right when I got to college and it's like getting all like all into that stuff. And something hit me where it's like, I want this to be as drown out, like just drag it out as far as you can. And that record just hit me. Um, I was like, like, I like Holy Mountain Bunch. Like, I like riffs, but something about that, just like the trance of it, just, it puts you in a different space. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, without the old like 420, whatever, high shit, like, no matter if you're sober, like you listen to that record, if you actually get into it and you're paying attention or you're paying attention so much that you're not paying attention, it just, it like puts you in that kind of space. Totally. And there's something very special about it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, at least to me. No, I mean, that record's a staple in the doom genre for a reason, I think. I think I think that there's a, a lot of value to this idea of being so tuned in that you're actually tuned out. That is a big part of where that gateway between like metal and that style of metal and then drone, that's where that bridge is in a lot of ways, right? Like that album mm-hmm. uh, in particular, I think. Uh, how was that a big, was that something that was really, I mean, you're talking about the distance between that and then Great Barrier Reefer coming out within five years, right? Within five years of each other. Yeah. Um, well, that came out within, well, for like a personal thing, like within under three. Mm-hmm. And like with those like two to three years was like such as like an exploratory time for me of just like learning about music. And like when we went to record that album, like I was 19. Um and had no gear, really. And so it's just like, we just tried stuff. And just tried to do what we want to do, and it kind of worked at times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's an album that you basically tried to use the full length that you could to create one track, right? Yeah, so at the time, um, as I said, like I mentioned, like with like the old like Deftones covers back when I was like 14, like. Dan, the drummer, Bonner, and I have been playing since then. Um, Ron, the bassist, joined soon after. And, like, Ron and I have known each other since we were three years old. He lived, grew up across the street. And then when I was, we were, like, that bad fucking generic metal band, um, Ron's dad worked with someone who knew someone had a studio. Mm-hmm. And that person turned out to be Dennis, who is the, the other guitarist in Bonner, for now. So he recorded us, like, three or four times, and, um, you know, like we start off as like, just like a bit bad mid paced metal band, mm-hmm. bad thrash band, bad, like weird, like morbid angel, like sugar band. <laughs> I don't know. And then like, uh, then it turned into like Dillinger escape plan. Just like no nonsense, garbage, like tech riffs. And then it was like bad techie death metal. And then our singer graduated college and moved away. Um, so we just started playing instrumental. But the thing is about with Dennis. So like when we were like 18 or 19, it's like 2000, I think it's 2004 because I was 19. Uh, Ron and I went to the Metro to see Isis, Pelican, and Indian, I think it was. That's a, that's a good lineup. 
Um, so it was like Pelican in Australia, Australasia, and ISIS on Panopticon. Um, and we saw Dennis at the show. And Dennis goes, hey, what's going on? They're like, oh, you know, not too much. She's like, how's the band going? Like, oh, our guitar's quick because he says we're a bunch of pricks. <laughs> He's like, well, I'll join. It's like, you want to join this, like, bad, like, kid tech metal band? Because, like, Dennis is, like, seven-ish years older than us. So, like, for 19, he was, like, 26, like. He's like, yeah. He's like, I like this stuff. He's like, let's do it. Come on. And like, he lives an hour and like 15 minutes outside the city. Mm-hmm. So he just started playing bad tech death metal with us. And then our singer left. And then one day I was just like, we were practicing, waiting to like regroup the death metal band. And uh, Dan's double kick ball broke. I'm just like, fuck it. Let's play some Doom and just dime the amp. And we just started jamming. And that was the birth. Yeah. That's and sick. then we recorded. We were like, well, like. We have, no, we're like, we have nothing going on. Like, you got the studio. He's like, yeah, it's coming down. We'll like, you know, we got that like one riff. We got the other idea. Like, we got this. So we'll record it. We'll listen to it one time by ourselves, and that'll be it. And we'll like record it, and like, like, this is fucking ridiculous. This 80 minute long song. There's like four to five parts. The don't have the capabilities to really improv, improv too well. At least myself. Dennis is better. Um, and then next thing I know is like just sending it to a few people on AIM, which took about like five to six hours. <laughs> <laughs> if they had the right internet connection at that time. An 80-minute long song. Um, and next thing I know, I just saw it like on all the blogs. Damn. And that was 2005, 2006. That's crazy. So let's flash forward a few years by that, so four years, I think, um, on Satan Worshipping Doom, which are coming up on your 10-year anniversary right now, mm -hmm. you have one song where there are vocals, and it does pick up a little bit. Um, does that stem from these previous incarnations of other bands, or how did that song make it onto the record? Um, am I thinking of the same record, or is this a different one? Nope. I'm thinking of um, 2007 record. 2007 record, yeah. Let's talk about that before we go into the Satan worshiping doom. So yeah, that <laughs> there is pace on that there, album. Though. There is, yeah. There, uh, yeah. That's the only uh, record that has vocals outside of uh, Hey Ashbury, which is just us screaming into a bunch of distortion pedals. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We were that was we recorded like right after. Well, not right after. We actually recorded, a, like, wrote a few different kind of parts of that, but, like, that was kind of more a hodgepodge thing, too. Just kind of, like, thrown together. And we just wanted... We weren't, like, still, like, a real band. Mm -hmm. Like, it was still, like, five years until people actually would come to our shows. Gotcha. Um, so, like, like, well, let's do a fucking D-beat song or, like, a punk song. Like, it's fun. Who gives a shit? There wasn't much thought thrown into it. That was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I always as, like as that. is the case with most DB. <laughs> yeah. I feel I, I always in the of that. liked that as like a little bit of a break on the album. Whenever I would listen to it, um, it was always really nice. Um, yeah, they, personally, I think the album's a little much. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I would I would play that record so much at work, so much. <laughs> but what, what what role did uh, splits? 
uh, and doing kind of shorter releases with other bands. When did that kind of become a part of uh, of what Bong Ripper does? Well, you know, throughout the entire career up until Sarah Should Be Doom and, well, always, I guess, if you want to call it that, that's, we've always done everything ourselves. So, you know, we just record something and put it out. Um, but after, uh, with Sarah Should Doom when that came out, that was the first time we did vinyl. We, uh, we pressed, I can't remember if it was 200 or 300 off the bat, probably was 300. And it came out at the beginning of August, and then we had the release show at Reckless Records in Wicker Park um, at the, I think it was the end of August. And by the time we did that, they were all sold out. And we already had a second pressing that was going on. And we realized that, like, oh, people will be into this, I guess. And they're like, just like, use that, like, but like, you know, like, we don't want to, like, repeat the same thing. We want to kind of do something different. And, um, so we just try to do a couple like shorter tracks, and I don't know I feel like the like the one song that like with the hate split like it fits for like what it is with them like it has a little bit more of that like kind of like hardcore feel to it, and um, the Conan song is I want to say it like matches Conan style but it's like a good kind of represent re- representation of us within like nine and a half minutes. Let's flash forward a little bit after the record came out and to the point where you played Roadburn. And you did the record in its full. How did that all kind of come about? They just, um, like, I saw that Roburn um, was, like, talking about us. And I was like, holy shit. Because, like, I was, like, part of, like, the Southern Lord forums and, like, the um, Doom Forever forum or Doomed forums, which came out of Southern Lord after they shut down their forums. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, I was always just waiting on the sidelines, like looking at Roadburn, like I need to be there. And every year I'm like, I'm gonna make it. Every year, never make it. <laughs> and then like I saw them like, okay. And then like they reached out to us, like, like I think it was Jurgen that put us like second record of the year for him or something like that. Um, and then he's like, well, we want to bring it out here, and like, okay, cool, that's awesome. Like we want to do it. Like, oh, we want you to play two sets. We're going to play, you, you do a one set at the church, the Pachanat, and then you do the album full in front of the main stage. Like, we played to, like, 150 people. So that the first show at Roburn at the Pachanat in front of, like, 60, 100 people, I can't remember what the cap's there, but, like, it's rather intimidating looking out on there. And that was insane. And then the next day playing the main room was something I never thought I would ever experience. Mm-hmm. And they make everyone feel so welcome and so at home there that, like, I didn't, like, I was obviously nervous as fuck. Like, I was freezing. Like, if you see, like, the first, like, especially the main stage show, like, I have, like, my hoodie always zipped up and my hood up because I'm freezing because I'm shaking out of fear. <laughs> so, like, it wasn't like, like a plan, like, oh, I got a costume change going on here, like... You know, halfway through the first song, I started zipping. You know, like it's just like I got out there. I was like, I was like freezing and shaking and like playing. I'm like, okay, I'm hitting all the right notes. I'm like, oh god damn, I'm fucking sweating. (laughs) But those those are huge. I mean, that's a weekend of massive milestones because you have your previously your biggest cap was 150. You go to Patronat, which is 
for those that haven't been there, unfortunately, they don't do shows there anymore. But that venue is 800 people in this beautiful church that is restored perfectly for music, so stained glass. Uh, it's uh, it it's has to be at least from like the 1600s or the 1500s. Um, obviously, perfect sound. Mm-hmm. Good people working there as well. Punishing and, sound there. Yeah. Holy shit. Like, mm-hmm. I know, even like with their decibel laws there, like, they just do it right. So, like, even if it might not be, like, the loudest thing, like, it hits you. And then, so you go from that, and you make about the same level of jump from there to the main stage. And the year that you played, it was probably, like, 3,000 people or so, or 3,500, right? Um, I think it was, like, 25 or 3, but... um. I know they expanded it now. I haven't been there since they've done that. I'm pretty interested to see how the zero uh, thirteen looks right now. It looks awesome though. Like it looks more like um, what's that place over in New York, Terminal Five? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're making huge jumps from the yeah. time that you <laughs> the, your first your shows at 150 <laughs> to 3500 or you know 25 to 300. You know. Yeah. Yeah. The next time I experienced like fear like that was when we played Hellfest. Oh yeah, which was like ten to fifteen thousand. Were you on the main? Were you in no, a tent? Which, or? <laughs> the main stage is a like tent for ten thousand people. Yeah. The main stage <laughs> was uh, one tent. <laughs> was uh, Lincoln Park, Aerosmith. Gotcha. Um, ugly. Well, after we played, Ugly Kid Joe played. I was leaving the stage. And I heard like the Cat's Cradle cover going on. I was like. <laughs> Still big in Europe. Yeah. No, but like, um, if you look at any, like, they have, there's like one stage that's like all Doom, but like, for some reason, it's insane. It's like 10 to 15,000 people. Like, after we played, like, I tried to like see a few of the shows. You can't even get up there. It's, I'd never experienced anything like it. And like, literally, like, the first like 10 minutes, like, you see my foot just like, like shaking as I'm like hitting a chord. Don't, don't fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you have Hellfest, which is a fest of probably about 80,000 people. Like, it's its own city for that weekend, right? Right. And so... It's its own city all the time. They, like, they just leave that shit up now. It's a, it's a city all the time. Okay. It's like a cornfield, <laughs> yeah. So maybe Doom is about an eighth of the metal world then, yeah. as we were talking about earlier, right? That's encouraging. I like that. So, but, all right. <laughs> uh, regardless, math, math lessons yeah. aside. <laughs> um, so, at that show at Roadburn, Walter told you that you had outsold sleep, right? Yeah. It how, was, how, it, did, how did that feel? <laughs> it was insane. We, I don't understand it. Like, I, I don't know. It was weird. <laughs> it was weird too. Like, yeah, like. Before we are set the Patronat, I was, I watched the opening to Dose Smoker, like I watched like eight minutes of it. They I think they might have started the the full drum thing with the bass, and I'm like, all right, I guess I gotta go play this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay. Did that like feed into some of your? Um, I, I don't want to call it fear, but just like your anxiety that you knew you were playing at the same time as sleep. Luckily, we were staggered enough where we weren't playing during them. Okay. Um, because, like, obviously, like, they want you, like, backstage, like, uh, basically a band before kind of thing, like, with most festivals kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't have... Thank fucking God we didn't have to play during sleep because that would suck. <laughs> um, <laughs> it almost might be more intimidating knowing you're playing after them, actually, now that I think about it. 
Yeah, that too. <laughs> I think that, but uh, that was probably the first time. Uh, that was the first time people had seen Bong Ripper in a lot of ways over there. So, and also probably the first exposure for a lot of people in general too. So that uh, wh- lost my train of thought. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's definitely, uh, you know, I know like a lot of bands are kind of like doing like the lower tune stuff now, but I like there's something about that tuning, which is, it sounds different at like live, like especially through like a PA with, you know, like Ron having the like sub bass going through just like slamming the subs. It's, it's not like a normal like rock show. It's different. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. When you hit past, I, I don't know what tuning you're in, but it's, it's beyond B, right? It's uh, F standard. F standard. So yeah, you definitely start hitting those sub bass kind of tones in it. And our, uh, our bassist has um, uh, the guy from uh, Dunwich uh, Pedals built him a DI box that has a uh, high pass filter in it, or low cut filter in it. And um, so it doesn't, so if you run it through the PA system direct in, you, know, you have like the game pedals in there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have all the like annoying harshness to it. So it makes like the sound engineer not have to like worry about it. They can just push it and it's like, oh, that's so like sick. literally like you have like the band here and then like he can just like take that fader and push up the sub to where he wants to be. Oh, that's awesome. That is one thing with um, uh, even mo- like we've seen so many doom bands, Alexi and I, and like, I will say, you guys, there's something about it. We, I remember this show that you did with um, Oozing Wound and Harm's Way. We were mostly in the balcony. Or was this the Russian Circles show? I don't even remember when you played Metro with, it was Metro with Russian Circles. That's what it was. Um, We were mostly hanging out up top. But when you guys went on, we made sure to go down low because there's something about that the sub bass you only really get on the main floor right yeah. and with you guys specifically the it just you feel it more so than a lot of other bands you you j- just it's something that's inside you it just comes out of those speakers and it just hits you really really hard and i remember you were really really pushing for it we were hanging out up top you're like we need to go down we need to go down and I'm like, dude, I, I think it sounds fine up here. You're like, no, we need to go down. And we went down, and I was like, fuck. God damn. Well, I mean, I think that uh, sa- I mean, sound carries differently for every band, and it, it, it's in accordance to the space, too. Mm-hmm. I think you're doing Bong Ripper wrong if you're above them. You need to be <laughs> below them or at, le- at eye level. Totally. I will... Definitely advocate for that after that experience. I'm, yeah, I'm saying if there's any like heavy band or even like any kind of like bassy artist or anything like that, I'm just like I need to, I want to feel it. Totally. And, uh, and I think like with um, like it's been a challenge because obviously between Ron, Dennis, and I, we're operating in really shareable frequencies that are just fighting each other the entire time. But we've been together so long that we have figured out how to do it better mm-hmm. so like you know i have like like one of dennis's friends who's been like a musician like seen shows the last like 30 years like you guys sound better than most doom bands because you can hear different things even though like we are obviously going to sound like muddy because we are tuned to fucking f mm-hmm. 
but you got to still have some sort of separation between that. And I feel like we've done a decent job of doing that as a band as a whole and like just making it easy for people to mix it despite not having a dedicated song guy. We've never had a song guy. <laughs> <laughs> that concludes our conversation with Nick Della Croce on Heavy Hops this week. Tune in next week for part two of this special two-part series adventure. Please also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on your preferred podcasting platform. We'll see you next week. Oh.